This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com. Welcome to Radio on Wheels on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. Each week we tow our mobile studio to a different location in Taranaki. We bring you local people, local stories, local events and local music. Radio on Wheels, a weekly show about your town. Yeah, I've been running, I've been running all my life. Hello and welcome to Radio on Wheels. My name's Michelle and today we're doing what we've been doing for the last few weeks and having virtual visits to our guests around the mountain. Uh, we're parked, the caravan's parked up at the moment, uh, not able to move because we've got to keep everybody safe, don't we? Don't want us spreading our germs all over the province. So today we've got a couple of guests uh, that we can bring to you by virtue of all this wonderful technology that we have on hand. So we are taking a virtual trip to Stratford first. And our guest there is a talented young musician who has been on the show before back in June. Uh, he came to the caravan and was interviewed by Andre. I wasn't actually there that day, and uh, so I still haven't met this person. But hopefully that will change one day soon. In the meantime, we've got him on the phone. Welcome back to the show, Jack Moser. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm really, really good, thanks. It's great to have you on the show again. I didn't get yeah. to meet you last time, but I did hear your music and hear your um, interviews, so I feel like I know you already. Oh, yeah. It's nice to be back on the show. Ah, good stuff. Now, um, have, uh, last time you were in year 13, but you're not anymore, are you? You just finished no, school. No, I had, had my last day on Wednesday. We had close giving. Oh, fantastic. How did it go for you? Good. I, I won a lovely little trophy for Best Original Song, which is cool. Ah, oh, Excellent. Did you get a trophy for your, for your smoke-free Rock Quest win as well to add to your collection? Um, I, got, I got a badge, a nice badge. Okay. Okay, so you don't quite have to build that standalone trophy room just yet, but you're working yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's a pretty exciting time of your life, Jack. Are you, have you got any plans for next year or um, are you still, still working out your options? Yeah, definitely still working out my options. Yeah. Cool. I'm sure that it'll have something to do with music, whatever you choose to do. 100% for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. And so how has your music, what have you been doing lately with your music? Because I remember last time you talked to Andre about um, some music that you were hoping to record in December and release in January. How's that going? It's going awesome. So I've been spending a bit of time in Olakura, um, with Sam Johnson at Rhythm Ace, um, doing a bit of a production music engineering course, and just learning all about different sorts of microphones and ways to record and all that to get a certain sound you're going for. Um, so, yeah, um, I get to record, start recording my original music on the 5th of December, and I cannot wait. Wow, okay. Sam's pretty amazing, isn't he? And he's got a great setup out there. Yeah, it, it is really awesome. He's an awesome guy. Has it just been you working with him, Jack, or has, has it been a group um, of you? Yeah, a group of us. It's me and a few other musicians um, from that area. 
And um, we're actually working on a bit of a song at the moment and learning uh, ways to record the song as we go, which I think is the best way to learn to record is actually just by doing it. Well, you know, that's that's really good of Sam because um, he could be doing himself out of a job <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by yeah, giving you that yeah. sort of skill. Yeah. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, we, we can't wait to hear um, that new music when it comes out. So, Jack, let's sort of just go back to where it all started for you. What 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 got you interested in music? Are you from a musical family or what inspired um, you? It was, it was my dad's um, friend, good friend. He was an amazing pianist. And um, I saw him play for the first time when I was about five. And that's when I realised that I wanted to play piano. And so I asked for one for Christmas and got one and then never really stopped playing. Wow. Self-taught or, or lessons, bit of both? Uh, self, self-taught, play by ear. And um, I've worked with a few different music teachers, but um, haven't really found one that works too well to cater for playing by ear. Right. Um, usually it's just trying to learn music theory, um, which, to be honest, I'm not too interested in. I'm just more interested in playing. Right. Well, you know, possibly half the most famous musicians um, have probably just learnt to play by ear, haven't they? We've all heard stories about, you know, the Beatles yeah, and different... Yeah, definitely a lot of, especially a lot of the pop music that yeah. comes out now, some of them don't even play instruments. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, and... How so? So you're sort of haven't haven't lived in Stratford for too long, have you? How have you found um, the school there? Have you had lots of support for your music and and the wider community actually? Yeah, lots and lots of support. It's been great, um, and I cannot wait for next year. Um, the single that I'm releasing uh, December fifteenth next month um, called "Love Is Blind." I filmed a music video in there at the grand piano. And obviously had a lot of staff supporting me with that because they could hear the song being played all morning. That was quite exciting. So you've got a grand piano at school? Yeah, there's a nice um, Yamaha grand piano in the hall. Oh, that's a bit special, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. I don't know of any other schools (laughs) in the province that have got a grand piano. That's pretty special. Is that why you chose the school? (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, cool. So tell me about the song, Love is Blind. Is that what you said it's called? Yep. Yeah. Uh, this song um, came to me when I was trying to sleep one month this year. Um, it just all started coming to me, and I wasn't exactly sure what it was about until the song was finished. Uh, but it's about a close friend that passed away a couple of years ago. Wow. Okay, so it really is from the heart. Yeah, definitely. From the heart. Okay. So, do you find um, because as well as being an incredible pianist, you're actually you sing as well, don't you? I do. I've been singing much more than I used to, um, especially this year. Right. And um, is it the lyrics or the music that comes to you first? Uh, it's the whole song. It's like having a song stuck in your head. Wow, a song that doesn't exist until you yeah until it exists in your head. That's, yeah. that's pretty special. So how, what's your process? You can tell that I'm not a musician because I don't understand <laughs> any of this stuff. But So what, what's your process? The song comes into your head and then do you, what, do you get your phone and, and 
record yourself singing it to, to keep it yeah, in your head? exactly that. Um, it's usually quite late when the song comes to me and the whole house is trying to sleep. So I get a little voice memo app on my phone out and kind of um, sing it quietly enough for me to be able to play it in the morning and go, oh, yeah, I can figure this out on the piano. And then I can really go for it and um, start working on getting the song foundations laid out. That's incredible. <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah, it must be. Must yeah. be. Yeah. So, do you enjoy working with other musicians as well, or do you prefer the stuff when it's just you? I love it all. So, I'm, I'm at the moment in a couple of bands. One band's been called Tin Razel, um, who's a bit like soul um, feeling to it, the yeah. genre. And then the Tiz, um, which is also another local band in New Plymouth. And that is. Uh, bit more alternative sounding genre and all of them are such great people and it's so fun working with other musicians. Oh cool. The Tiz has got like lots of people in the band haven't they? Yes it's so cool. Um, actually just before I was working on the music video we filmed out at Swamp Shack Studio. Um, there's about four songs we recorded as a one take so at the moment um, just editing all those little different camera angles together. Oh. So that will be very cool. Good stuff. Hey, shout out to Chris Foreman at Swamp Shack Studio. That's yeah. so hard to say. Yeah. Swamp Shack Studios. Um, it's really cool that you're working with so many different people because you're getting a lot of different influences there, aren't you, Jack, I imagine? Yeah, yeah, and you can learn so much. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I sense that your musical journey is, even though you've been playing since you were five, I sense that your musical journey hasn't um, run out of steam just yet. So um, No. Yeah. Do you play any other instruments? No, I don't. Um, when I was a little younger, I used to play um, the harmonica mm -hmm. for the song Piano Man, um, but I wouldn't really consider myself uh, a harmonica player. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I could really do. With yeah. Another instrument. Okay. And is, what's the music scene like in Stratford? Is there there was at one stage a um a, like a singer songwriter open mic type event happening, but it's so hard at the moment, isn't it, with all the different lockdowns and changes all the time? It's um is there is there much in the way of live music at the moment? No, we don't really get too much live music in Stratford. Um, I tend to travel to New Plymouth a few times a week for band practices and open mic nights and all that, because the cantor does a pretty cool open mic night every Thursday. Right. Yeah. Right. He chants that most weeks. Yeah, and, I, and of course there's the um, singer-songwriter at the Little Theatre once a month when that's happening. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really cool, awesome... But I don't really think there's anything like singer-songwriters in New Zealand. Right. It's just so full of people... Just there to listen to music and nothing else compared to they're there to get drunk and yeah. have background music. Yes, that's a big difference, isn't it? Because it's seeing a songwriter, yeah. it, it is everybody fully concentrating on whoever's on stage at that time. And it's, um, it's yeah. a very, seems to be a very nurturing kind of um, experience for the, the musicians. Yeah, yeah. It, is. It, feels, it feels a bit underground because. It's so um, 
it's not actually for how cool it is. There's not many people that you would think would go to it. Like there's mm. maybe 40, 50 people. And I felt, I feel like if the whole of New Plymouth knew about it, then everyone would be there. You know? Yeah. So it feels like you're quite lucky to go every time you go there. Yeah, I agree. There is something a bit underground feeling about it, isn't there? Like it's it's yeah. our little secret. And shout out to Andre Manella who runs that so beautifully these days. So well organised. Yeah. yeah. What I love about it is as, as an audience member, you never know what you're going to get. So you'll be sitting there and somebody might come up on stage and you think, yeah, you, you kind of um, think, oh, I don't know what to expect of this person. Yeah, and suddenly yeah. they'll launch into some incredible music and you'll go, oh, wow, oh, I'm blown away here. Um, because you don't have any preconceived ideas about the artists unless you've um, seen them before. And they're, you know, some of them are really experienced musicians who have been playing for years and years and years. And then you'll get the 14-year-old the that's never done it publicly before and, and everybody's always very supportive of, of the new talent as well. Yeah, it's awesome, eh? Yeah, but we won't tell too many people about it, hey? <laughs> yeah, we'll keep that one uh, sort of a secret. Yeah, because it is quite a little, well, it's called the Little Theatre. It is quite a yeah. small space and it's, it's you know, that's part of the charm, I think, isn't it? Awesome. So you've got the single coming out on the 15th of December and you and I have talked yeah. about that we'll um, get Chris. Chris Johnson has his um, Chris's Picks shows on Wednesday mornings at 9am, 9 till 10, and um, he's going to feature that song when it comes out. But, yeah, do you have a little bit of music that... Can you give us a little teaser of it on this show? Can we be the first place ever to play it? sure thing. Yeah? Cool. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break for that, and we'll be back in a moment. folks that's just a little teaser you heard it here first that's uh, Jack Moser with Love is Blind thank you for sharing that with us Jack it feels very special to be the first people to be um, playing that publicly so um, thanks for giving us that little little peek into your world yeah so so you've got exams coming up haven't you yeah we've got my first exam on Tuesday what's that one is it music? Uh, I've got one music exam. I'm doing a bit of an analysis on Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Oh, cool. Oh, wow, that's awesome. And um, and then you got the serious stuff, the, the statistics and everything yes, else. the serious math. Does it, does it feel a little bit weird being a grown-up now? It does feel a bit weird, but I feel like I'm ready to go out into the world and figure out where, where I want to go and what I want to do. 
it's a new adventure. Oh, that's great to hear. Awesome. Well, Jack, we wish you the very best uh, for the future and look forward to that single release on the 15th of December and also look forward to, you know, keeping in touch and, and following your career with interest. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Singing in the tree outside my window As I rise to the sun And the song hits a crescendo It makes me know in my soul Everything's gonna be alright Make me feel like a king When I hear them sing so bright
Radio on Wheels. That was a song called Tutui by local Taranaki band The Slacks. And I chose that one because Scotty from The Slacks, he's a Stratford bloke too, just like our last guest, Jack Moser. And I believe they've done a little bit of jamming or, or collaborating together as well. So, you know, we're just all one big happy family here in Taranaki, aren't we, really? So that was a great conversation that we had with Jack. He's a very inspiring young man. And we're lucky enough to have another inspiring young, well, not, not quite as young man uh, as our next guest. And uh, he knows quite a lot about the history of South Taranaki. His passion for history is really infectious and I think you're really going to enjoy his korero. You're tuned in to Radio on Wheels on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. My name's Michelle and we're having a virtual visit today. We've met Jack Moser from Fukaharangi, Stratford, and next we're heading to Pātia. And we would love for you to join us. And as promised, we've scooted virtually over to Pātia and have our next guest on Zoom. Welcome, Darren Nariwa. Kia ora, how are you? Oh, fantastic. Really, really nice to meet you, Darren. I feel like I've been stalking you a little bit because I'm quite fascinated with your your page that you have up on um, Facebook, which is called A Walk Through Old South Taranaki with a Māori Descendant. Yeah, something, a big name. I, I didn't really think it was going to go as far <laughs> as it did, but um, at the time it was yeah, partially a historian's point of view of things rather than, you know, so much from a uh, Maori perspective because I'm not the greatest at Tereo, so yeah, more historian side, but from a Maori, uh, obviously, Maori descendants point of view, in English, yeah. in English, so <laughs> thank you limited. for that because that does help some of us who, who are not yet fluent in Tereo. Including myself, yes, learning. Um, so what I'm, I'm quite fascinated, like what what got you started on this journey? Did you um decide that you were going to um document the history and um, you've taken wonderful video with your drone or was it a case that you, you Santa brought you a drone and you thought what will I do with this? <laughs> How did yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a bit, uh, it goes back many many decades actually Michelle so um, I've always been interested in historical things and it, it probably uh, relates to as a child and I used to go around to some of the old bottle dumps didn't really know what I was doing as a young fella in the 1970s. Um, me and my friends would just play around party and we ran into these old bottle dance parties. It's got quite a bit of history itself. And I used to pick up some of these bottles and like all kids going back generations, we used to smash them and then I took some back to mum. And mum said, oh, those are old bottles. And so I was going to collect them. So I got interested from that and started bringing them home. And so there was my first step into looking at really old things. So as I grew up, um, Pātia, where I'm born and bred. Um, I, I was sent to Hatapolda College, um, which is Catholic Māori College, around 1985. And I was reading a book. And my family have quite a close connection with 
uh, the, you know, the, the Marais around here, this is my father's father, so on, so on. And uh, I was reading a book about parts here and it had the history of uh, Pakakoi to Pakakoi, which is Niwi from this area. I'd never heard of them. So when I came back to party on my um, holidays, one of our old co-martyrs called Koro John Hiramaya, I ran over the road and asked him, who's this Tapakakui? And um, he said to me, blood, sweat, tears, and sort of walked off. And I was 15 years old about this time, so I was quite confused what he meant. Yeah. And uh, as I started delving, and to get back to your question, as I started delving into it, um, that was my start of looking into the history of uh, the Māori, of this Māori tribe in particular, and the site itself actually starts around that uh, research over three decades. And then uh, as I got to the end of it, because I was, um, we might be able to cover this a bit later on, but as I got to the end of it, uh, which is the imprisonment over in Otago, not quite uh, Parihaka, they're slightly different. There's, they get mixed up, but this is slightly different than Parihaka, which is 1880s. This is actually 18. 69, 70, 71, and they were the, the Pakakoi were actually locked up for uh, treason. So a fight against the Queen, basically, whereas Parihaka are more around uh, fighting for the confiscation of, of surveying of their lands. Um, so two different groups, but both went sent to Otago, and um, over history has sort of incorporated more around the Parihaka, but not so much the other group. So anyway, as I as I went through that site of you were know, talking about the the walk through South Tanaka from Māori to Senate, I um, got to the end of that part of the, the Pakakoi, which is the, obviously released. And I thought, well, next thing I'll do is I'll I'll actually go around these sites and uh, that some of the old Māori used to live in, and see if I can find them and record them. And it was quite a complicated task to locate some of these old sites. There's no real uh, written records around, probably. Probably be honest, um, ninety percent of those par are very hard to find, and even for those that are quite knowledgeable in, in Maori history and the likes of Archie Hurnui, Hippie O'Brien, Tapui Campbell, these guys are you know quite knowledgeable in my area and real speakers. Um, they they themselves didn't know a lot about them, so I had this long history already behind me of you know covering up history. So it, it was the next step for me was just to do a little bit of detective work. And I, the drone was just part and parcel of locating these sites, in some cases um, within range of the drone, which had like a two, two kilometer range, but out of range of me actually getting to them without mm. getting permission from a farmer. So I did get permission from quite a few farmers, but not all of them, because I really didn't know who owned the land at that time. This must have taken or must take an awful lot of your time. So you're obviously very passionate about it. Are you doing it just for fun or is it something that you think is really important to have that history recorded and and documented? Because it's really quite different, um, you know, seeing through seeing the, the, the flybys with the drone is so different to reading something in a book or, or seeing something on an old map, isn't it? It's, yeah, it is. And, doing and, uh, this? Yes, yes. Uh, I sort of try to clarify it in the book where I'm coming from. Um, and so basically, I sort of see, uh, and I could see it from my generation where they, the history was lost. Yeah. Including about that area I was talking about, and including about the history of them. Uh, and so these past sites have obviously all disappeared as well. They were there, and, you know, obviously where they were, but no one knew where they exact locations, not, no one even knew the names. Um, mm -hmm. Then obviously without the names, didn't know the history of them. 
And in some cases, they were battle sites as well. You know, battle sites not only between um, European and, and Māori, but between Māori and Māori. So uh, some were kāinga, which is just a home, and some were uh, fishing villages, but quite a few actual uh, forts, you know, Māori forts. And included in those Māori forts was the European forts from the British soldiers. So, um, yeah, it's a, it, was a, it was definitely time-consuming, uh, more so around finding the history, which I had to really, in order to find the history about them, the, the names itself was tough. Uh, and in some cases, on a maps, the names are actually wrong. So I was trying to correct stuff as well. So, yeah, originally, it was really just a bit of research for myself. But as I started going forward and I realised how tough this was for me, we had a, a long background of research and a long background of archival information and everything else that I could find. And I was around in um, the mid-'80s when some of these elders were still around who were the sons of my grandfather was a son of one of the prisoners who was sent down to Otago. So we... We had a little bit of um, family knowledge on this, and I'm, you know, I'm born and bred in Pātea, uh, very closely connected to our marae still. So I really wanted this information to be, and I say it on that site, uh, for a generation that may come 100 years from now, 150 years from now. And I foresee that this generation, as with myself, who's, who's uh, part, I'm basically you know, half European, half Māori, my father's a full-blooded Māori, one of the last of my area, and my mother's um, Irish, English, Irish, more Irish than English. But yeah. <laughs> I, I knew that a new generation was coming. Um, my sister's uh, mokos or grandchildren are part Samoans and the Polynesians. They had nothing, the Polynesians and the Samoans had nothing to do with any of the, the land wars. My brother's uh, daughter's his partner is uh, Indian. You know, obviously they had nothing to do with the land wars. Um, and my daughter, one of my daughters, I've got three daughters, as a English uh, partner, well, they did have something different land wars. So, you know, so what I'm trying to create here is to bring in uh, knowledge for these generations in the future and make it more inclusive. And I didn't want it to be, definitely didn't want it to be for Māori only or for Pākehā only, you know, European. I definitely wanted to incorporate it for the new generations. And they might only have an inkling of blood from some of these uh, descendants or ancestors, I should say. But I did. I, I definitely felt uh, that what I was trying to do was create create something that, when that time comes for those that are interested and they want to look back, knowing how hard it was in my time of 1980s, 1990s, 2000, that they could just go onto the site. I'm working on a book, uh, in the progress of working on a book with the pictures, and uh, just give them an ink, uh, give them a little insight into something that's really, really hard to find. That's really my my main motivation of going down that path. Yeah, well, look, thank goodness you're doing it because um, there is a distinct lack of documented history, isn't there? And I think um, sometimes Pākehā people, so I'm born and bred in Australia, so I have no family connection to the land or anything like that. Um, and, you know, unless you go out looking for that information, so I don't have any family stories or anything like that, and unless you go, you do have to dig pretty hard to find um, the history in, in Aotearoa. Hopefully that's changing. There is a lot of people focusing on it now. But um, I know, you know, my husband growing up never never learnt anything about Māori history um, at all. And, and what a shame that is because it's so rich and it's so much a part of who all of us are. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a tough one, Michelle, because... Um, you know, the land itself is 
definitely going to be here longer than the people and you know the future generations that come here uh, at least from my perspective uh, this is their land as well so the history is not only uh, Māori, Pākehā or whatever it's you know it's, we're talking about the land itself and therefore that's my um, point I was making before that I see you know a new group of people arriving on our shores they're already here and they, we don't want to, well, personally, I don't want to exclude them from being part of this history just because this history didn't involve their people mm. uh, because they live on this land. They're coming to our land. I'm, I'm, you know, more, I welcome these people, um, what they call immigrants, which will one day become what I call tangata whenua. And this, it's just a story about the land. And of course, it's about the people of that time, um, but the land itself still remains. And so the past sites and the videoing and the drone footage is really just taking pictures of landscapes that still exist, at least in some form. They may not be like that you know, in the future, but at least the videos and the, and the photos I'm trying to take are still going to exist. So if someone does want to see them and how they looked out like, at least in my time, um, yeah. they hopefully can steer into these uh, books or this, the site and, and see it. Yeah, because we don't have any of the big stone castles or anything that you see in, in Europe that, that you know, exist for hundreds of years and are very obvious. You have to dig a little bit deeper for um, Māori history and historical sites, which is exactly what you've done. And, you know, you've written, you've documented it in such a way that it's it's interesting and it's very readable for people that don't have any knowledge really of the history. So well done for doing that. And thank you so much for the work you're doing to, to bring it alive, actually. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, I mean, actually, to be honest, my spelling's terrible. Um, and as I'm right, as I'm putting it down into a book format and trying to clarify a little bit better, um, I'm having to sort of correct a few things. So it's that's ninety percent, you know, on point, but it's got ten percent of spelling errors and and uh, missing my little macrons above the mouldy words, which is terrible. Um, but I tried to. I went, yeah. So my my skill set on a computer is very limited. So as I tried to add these macrons, and I was asking my son, how do you add these macrons? Um, yeah, they, yeah, it was a tough, he showed me and I just couldn't figure it out. I'm pretty limited on that side of things. So, so the book, is that something that you're doing completely by yourself? You haven't got an editor or any kind of support for it? What do you? I, I well, my biggest, my biggest uh, backer, I should say, is Jackie Dwyer, to be honest. I had no oh. intention of doing the book. Yeah, yeah. Jackie's my biggest uh, and probably my only fan, to be honest. And she what she thinks the information. She obviously she's a Jeff. If you heard of Jackie Dwyer, she's a historian for Partier, and she's a she's a really wide scope of of things. And um, I like I was saying to me when I originally started with this stuff, there were like ten people watching my site, and I was you know, I really wanted to do it as I was saying for future generations. And then as a especially when it's gone went into the drone footage, the numbers sort of popped up to a hundred and then thousand and whatever it is now. I lost track. <laughs> It's um, about yes. 1,700, and I think that's oh, okay. fascinating considering that, you know, the population of South Taranaki is around 30,000. That's a pretty good percentage. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely didn't want, uh, I didn't push for it to be too public. I just really wanted to go quietly and keep my head below the mainstream yeah. stuff. But Jackie was my biggest fan, and uh, and she said, you know, um, you need to put in a book. And so as I went along, I sort of... No, no, you're right. No, no, you're right. And that went on for a while. I really only wanted to sort of compress it into a year because I'm a, a nursery manager and I knew once we get the harvest, um, I'd have to I'd have to uh, concentrate on the harvest itself. And now we've got two nurseries 
I have to, um, as the only one who's got skills in the, if I'm gonna take a little bit off track here, but I'm the only one who's got skills in the fruit and vine industry of this area for growing blueberries. So I, I'm shooting up to Hawera and helping the industry and I'm running the one in part there. So I knew once that kicked into play, the time that I'm putting into this site would be really compressed, but also, I did want to come to an end. I didn't want to carry on just doing past sites randomly. I did want to concentrate myself on Taranaki because that's my, um, that's where my family originated. And, and, and from a Māori perspective, um, and I mean this nicely, my biggest critics are, are the Māori. It's very rare for even the farmers who own the land to turn around and criticise me. It's actually other Māori and a very small number, but they tend to be um, you know, very protective of what they believe and you know, and unless I have a waka papa, or at least I, you know, have the, the family that actually comes from that area itself, um, these guys, they won't hesitate, the, the small number won't hesitate to tell me off and say, you know, who the hell are you to talk about, Al? Until I turn around and say, no, actually, I come from there, that's my ancestors, and I, and I can waka papa to a number of these places, and only then do they take a step back and go, oh, okay. So, yeah, it's a, it's a touchy subject for some. I really haven't been criticised by any Europeans. And I don't yeah. mean to say this is the, the Māori are bad, but some uh, a small group are very protective of what they see as their rights and their, you know, their uh, family history. And so I treat very carefully. Yeah. Around this. yeah, and you know, hopefully they're willing to give you some advice and feedback rather than just criticise. Hopefully it's like, oh, you got this a little bit wrong. Our understanding is this is what happened, um, so that you can learn from them as well rather than just. And I've been very open about that. If they have history, uh, you know, and, and I've acknowledged on that site that I'm only human and I'm, I don't have a big group behind me. In fact, I'm doing it on my own and I'm, I'm trying to locate as best as, as I can as far as the history of some, particularly the past sites go. Um, as far as the history I was talking about, about the iwi, Pakakui, I, you know, that's a, I went down to South, I've been down South a couple of times to see the um, memorial and where, they, where they're buried, those that died down there. And uh, Sean Brosnahan, who's the curator for the Te Toitu Museum of, of Dunedin, he gave me, well, he actually gave to Ngāti the iwi from South Taranaki, the, um, all the written information that he could find in Dunedin for that time that they spent down there. And as a kaitiaki, I was guardian uh, for the history of this iwi. Uh, iwi historian, some would call me. They gave it to me, so I was able to access all that information and use that as what originally was why I started sharing it on that site. Now with the past sites was a little bit different. It was much harder to locate. And um, and again, you know, the, the land that these past sites are on, which is the only reason these past sites still exist, is because it's farms that you know they haven't been turned into a um uh, you know been turned into a factory or housing. So uh, yeah. that, that has happened on many many areas where the land's just completely gone. And some of the farms have been bulldozed and that as well. But and um and the majority of them still remain fairly intact for that purpose that they're on isolated areas of farming. So a farmer's been very uh, supportive for those that I've managed to get permission from. I haven't had any turn me down. Uh, I also go out on some of these places with my metal, metal detector and we are no, um, and where, there's, where they're turning the land over and there was a camp there from the British Army. So it's interesting when I, you know, when I find some of their buttons and I found quite a few of the, the bullets buttons is the main thing, but also the buckles and other little bits and pieces. So yeah, my history, you know, back to the bottle was a little bit wider. Yeah, you've, you've kind of come full circle, haven't you? Do, do the farmers usually know that they've got a parasite on their land? Is that something that they're generally aware of, or are you saying, or are you telling them? 
Yeah, a lot of cases I'm having to tell them. Some of them do know there's a pass. Some, some parts are very, uh, past sites are very obvious. You can see yeah. the trench, you know, like the like a um, British um, castle type without the castle, you know, the top yeah. of the hill with the trenching. And some are, are a lot less obvious where it's just land. And and I know that the uh, site was there because it's sort of recorded. But all the recordings I had to access were actually from the British Army itself or from the European Army, the colonial army. Obviously, if Māori didn't have books and writings until too much later, so I was able to access some of the stuff from there. From, uh, like, for instance, Tutangi Wainui, who was a boy warrior during the time of uh, Te Tokawaru, Tupati, another boy warrior during the time of Te Tokawaru, who both lived to be fairly old men in the early 1900s, and then got interviewed by James Cohen. So the information was, you know, and then I was able to access some of the Māori land courts and find some information there. But by far, the main recordings were definitely coming from the actual soldiers themselves um, recording sites, the Battle of Tanayo, Katlamea, Manatai, uh, those two past sites were quite big and, and during the time of 1865 when General Cameron's army uh, marched through South Taranaki and they definitely didn't know any about any of those places but nor did a lot of Māori. So a lot of information I have on there is really just um, unknown. So it, it was a bit of detective work. It was it was very um, you know, self-fulfilling to find them and just to locate yeah. them and then get the pictures but also to read it. And it's not always nice reading, to be honest, but I'm very open-minded. I understand, you know, that uh, there's no one around now that, that was part and parcel of that. So it is a yeah. brutal time. It's a, you know, the interaction between the uh, Māori and the, and the European of those days is, is not all fighting. It was peaceful times, but when the fighting occurred, you know, it was generally, uh, you're all in the same boat as far as some of the government officials were concerned. So it was very hard for Māori of that time to stay out of the fighting one of their family were involved in fighting as far as I concerned, you're all involved. So yeah. yeah. What's eventually leads to the imprisonment, you know, of the of this Iwi from South Taranaki. It's sad reading, you know, but it's it's also um gives you insight. Yeah. So Darren, you you're you're working on this book and you're continuing to do the investigate the past sites with your with your drone. Is it ever gonna end for you? Are you are you do you see that you're Continue with this work. Yeah, I, I, I was actually surprised how many past sites are out there. And I've got to mention, um, even though I was talking about just before about the soldiers, there are actually the soldiers account. There are actually uh, books, and there are people before me. Uh, some were archaeologists, and some were just genuine interested in uh, Maori history. Uh, Europeans interest, interested in Maori history. They have managed to get uh, trust by the elders of their time. Um, one of these guys, um, John Houston. John Houston was a uh, European and he was around in the early 1910, 20s, 30s. And he got to talk to quite a few of these elders. I think actually he goes a bit further back. Sorry, he's about probably more around the 1950s, 60s, 1940s, 50s, 60s. So another generation of the Māori who were the sons of the warriors. Um, but he was actually quite trusted by a lot of these people. So he was one of those people that was able to record past us. He had a genuine interest in it. He didn't have a drone. He had to go and walk around these places. Yeah. And I was able to access some of his information from the Hawaii Star. And from he's got a book that was put out after he died. And then with that information, I was able to locate these places because what he did is he used the old maps and he would put, and when you look at the old map, Kaolau map and the Waimati district map and the Hawaii district map sort of, they have uh, block names, and he'd actually put the block name, and that right. made it really easy for me to locate them. So he was my, he's my best ass. So I call him Koro John, and we're not related at all, but I, <laughs> I, I hold that guy, and I've got to see a photo of him, and he's a, 
you can just see it in him. He's a, he's, he's a very interested in Māori history, but he wasn't a Māori himself, and yet he was trusted by a lot of these elders who were leaders of the uh, Satanaki Māori tribes back in 1940, 50, 60s, you know, right up to John's death. Um, before him, there's James Cohen, as I was saying, who's a historian. Not quite the same, because James Cohen has done really good books, and he's in awards, William 1 and 2, and he was able to interview, you know, quite a few Māori uh, warriors at that time in the 1860s who are now old men and Europeans as well. And so he's got a really good book that sort of covers both sides. And then you've got a lot of books that are just one-sided and, you know, the, as far as the one-sided version goes, the Māori's, it's their fault, you know, they're quite tough. Yeah, that was bad. Yeah. yeah, is what it is, you know. Older stuff from older generations, but um, yeah, Alistair Buis is another one that went out there in the uh, 1960s from the South Tamaki area. And he'd sent drones, he sent, uh, not drones, uh, he went on an aeroplane, he took photos from the aeroplane. And so he's got aerials, uh, but he doesn't have the same history as John Houston, because John Houston was able to get the history from those elders. So he was able to talk about these, you know, these old battles uh, between Māori and Māori in some cases, not with the European stuff, but that's easier to find. But Māori and Māori, Māori against Māori, Waikato against Taranaki, you know, Taranaki against Ngāti Dūna and so on, which is very interesting. And, and, and also from families that held this information, genuine families that you know, actually walk a papa or families go back to those areas. Um, Alistair Buist was strictly an archaeologist, so he was taking photos of these sites and then he was recording the name, but he didn't actually say we got the information from. But I can access some of his stuff uh, from the National Library and Archival Information Museums. And it's, yeah, I was able to find those places as well because they look exactly the same. So here the name was just quite quite good as well. So between the two of them, it was sort of covered about 60% of my past sites, maybe 70, and the rest of them I had to sort of work out myself. Yeah. yeah. There's some that are in the, the map had them in the wrong place. And I was able to work out the map had them in the wrong place because of people like John Houston who had got his information from the elders. So I was able right. to, yeah, and that's actually on there, but it's not corrected. There's still, if you go on some maps, topo, uh, Topograph, whatever it is, you know, as far as that map goes, and and even some of the older maps I was talking about, yeah, they have some of these places and are not actually correct. Hopefully, we can correct that one day. It looks like you've got a life's work still ahead of you, Darren. Actually, I know you've done plenty already, but you're not going to get bored with it anytime soon, are you? No, uh, and sorry, I missed the question that you said before about uh, how long have I got to go in there. Yeah, to be honest, yeah, this I, I did want to stop at some point. Um, because I felt like I had sort of covered it, but but yeah, if I did was if I was going to go further, I'd probably go further north. Yeah, and maybe further south. Um, I feel I found when I went further south, although I've got relatives through my great grandmother in Kaiwi and stuff like that. Again, on the Maori side, uh, they were a lot more guarded about handing over the information. And the reason they were guarded about handing over information for those that knew is there was. Problems happening with people that were going out there and disturbing some of the sites looking for artifacts. Okay. And so they were wary about that. And yeah, when I went, and the further you go north, uh, you start to run into quite a bit of um, a bit more built up, you know, towards New Plymouth where you built up areas. So you know, much sending the drone over a property where these houses is probably going to get my drone shot down or something. So yeah, when I was going on the farms, there was no houses around, maybe one house. And, Easy. Uh, yeah. area there. I don't want to be, yeah, there are a lot of things going on in farms as well. And it was on the news actually about people sending drones over to, not long after I'd done my stuff where people were sending drones over and they were got a bit paranoid. They were um, looking for things Thanks. to steal and off their drones. So I thought, oh. Then there's the cannabis crops being grown in the maize fields and stuff. So I, I look quite bad when you see my face and you see, you know, just one of those looks, I suppose. And I thought, oh, what's he up to? But 
it was good when I got to talk to them because I was able to explain myself. And some had a genuine interest, you know, a lot of them had genuine, most of them actually had genuine interest in what I, in what I was doing and didn't really get stopped by anybody. They, they just, well, once I asked, yeah, so I didn't always know who to ask because it's quite a widespread area. But if I, um, hopefully for Jackie, who's my, I said to Jackie, you know, you're my, you're my farming diplomat sort of thing. Cause <laughs> farming, I don't have that background. But I yeah. just, uh, um, if I do go into a book, I do need to get permission from a number of people. So I'm hoping Jackie gets that door open for me. I really don't perceive too much problems from the farmers. They're, they're quite good. They've been quite good. Yeah, awesome. Darren, your enthusiasm and passion for this mahi is, is really uh, contagious. So I look forward to watching your page with interest and, and looking out for that book. When you got the book published, Come back to us and tell us about it, and we'll, we'll help you publicise it, okay? Come yeah, it's a work in progress, Michelle, work in progress. Yeah, yeah, well, look, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but <laughs> at some point. Yeah, thank you so much for being our guest today, Darren. It's thank you, Michelle, for involving me in your, in your guys' uh, mahi, and all the best with your, with your listeners and with yourself, and stay safe out there with this uh, crazy times at the moment. Um, I'm pretty isolated in my little area, but um, I assume you guys are in a, a bit more built-up area where you are. So, yeah, everyone stay safe, look after yourselves, and be kind and all the rest of that, you know. Hard times for some. Crazy. Yeah, indeed. We've got some good people out there, so. There really are, and we need to focus on the good people and the good things that are happening. Like yourself, Darren, so thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for involving me, Michelle. Cheers. Thank you, Darren.
easily See you look back on life Taking it too seriously a band called Corduroy with the song Fire and uh, I'd like to say thank you very much to our guests for today. We had Jack Moser, young musician from Stratford and Darren Nawriwa, a an amateur historian who's doing some fantastic mahi on uh, South Taranaki and the history there. So thank you to both of our guests. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to the Toy Foundation and Lottery Grants Permit commission even, um, for keeping our wheels turning, even though they're not really turning at the moment. Uh, we really appreciate your support. And, yeah, thank you for listening. We will be back next week with Radio on Wheels. Kakite. This show was first broadcast on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM, thanks to New Zealand On Air.